0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Classic Vinyl Podcast. This is Justin and Tyler. We're both here again. And today we're going to do a fairly well-known album. In fact, we're picking kind of low-hanging fruit, I Mm. would say, as far as classic albums go. But we knew we would get to this one eventually. And of course, that's Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. If it was hanging any lower, we'd be picking it up off the grass. The grass. The grass. So let's get into a little history about Pink Floyd as the band. They're an English rock band formed in London in 1965. Uh, they were considered an early psychedelic group. They had a very high experimentational side to them, especially in their early years and their later years and their mid-years and everything. So,
1: They're, um, th- These guys are kind of a concept band. They, uh, they, they make a lot of concept albums. They were
0: definitely a very experimental band. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) Of course, the band was founded by Sid Barrett, who was guitar and vocals, Nick Mason on drums, Roger Waters on bass and vocals, and Richard Wright on keyboard and vocals. The band, all in all, sold over 250 million albums worldwide, which isn't too bad. Uh, They've been a huge influence on many artists, more than we could even name, obviously. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. They're actually the second band after the Beatles to be f- featured on a UK postage stamp. A little history there. Mm-hmm. Their debut album in uh, 1967 was The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's kind of an interesting album, not really <laughs> the kind of Floyd I'm into, but it seems like there's people that are into the early and the late Floyd <laughs> and, and not a lot of mixing. There, There's very, there's a lot of instrumentation and very experimental on the, their early stuff. You mean this is the toned-down uh Pink Floyd? I don't know if it's the tone <laughs> down. I just think once Sid Barrett was out of the group, they found a different groove. Ah, I see. Uh David Gilmore joined in nineteen sixty-eight as the second guitarist. He was basically a replacement for Sid Barrett, who had been struggling with drugs and mental health issues. All in all, they've released 15 studio albums, four live albums, 12 compilation albums, five box sets, and they released 27 singles. Their very first single was Arnold Lane, which hit number 20 in the UK. Dark Side of the Moon is about 50 million worldwide mm-hmm. sales at this time. Famous albums such as The Piper, The Gates of Dawn, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, The Wall, Animals. There's some others, but those are their big yeah. albums. Uh, Money was a top 20 U.S. hit, but another brick in the wall. The Wall was uh, a number one hit in U.S. and U.K., Wish You Were Here, The Wall and The Division Bell, which was released in 1994, reached number one in the U.S. Pulse also reached number one in the U.S. and the U.K. in 95. Pulse was kind of a cool CD I had. It actually had a little red uh, LED light on it that flashed on and off, and it lasted for, I mean, hell, a a year at least. Yeah, so the band isn't without their problems either. You know, David Gilmour and Roger Waters have been at at each other for a while Gilmore started touring with the new Pink Floyd in 1986 Waters threatened to sue him they released the division Bell in 94 which is basically just David Gilmore and of course the founding member of Pink Floyd Sid Barrett passed away in July of 2006 at age 60. Uh, Richard Wright passed away in September of 2008 at 65. And they've had a lot of fights among themselves. They've had a lot of fights with the record companies over contracts, things like that. But it's mainly David Gilmour and Roger Waters still to this day that, I mean, just go look it up. They have many a fight going on. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're ready to get to the album review. Let's spin it. And now it's time for the album review. Okay. So like I said, we're picking... One of the best-selling albums of all time Mm -hmm. today and definitely the best-selling album of this era or the classic vinyl era that we try and cover, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Now, this was the band's eighth studio album. It was released on March 1st of 1973. It was released on Harvest Records in the UK and Capitol Records here in the US. It was recorded at EMI Studios in London, which has famously been renamed Abbey Road Studios now. It was produced by Pink Floyd themselves, and they also had Alan Parsons as the engineer. He had uh, engineered on Abbey Road and Let It Be for the Beatles, and then went on to form the Alan Parsons Project later in the 70s and 80s. So you have got David Gilmore on vocals and guitars, Roger Waters on vocals and bass, Richard Wright on organs, piano and vocals, and Nick Mason on the drums. There's a lot of talent involved in the making of this album. There is quite a bit of talent, and they they definitely... It's hard to say what pinpoints the success of this album. You know, and we'll get to that in Winners and Losers, what we think it Mm -hmm. is, but this is a tough one to do because there isn't one thing about this. You know, it's not like this thing had three number one hit singles. I Mm -hmm. mean, when you compare this to the best-selling albums of all time, and I'll get to that in a second, the other ones that was in those categories with had huge hits yeah this this is a true and true album so it's a very experimental concept album i mean they use tape loops synthesizers and basically the first album using 16 track mixes too in the studio so and they u- utilize that fully this album reached number one in the u.s australia and canada but only number two in the uk in their homeland which is kind of strange but it remained on the u.s billboard charts for 736 weeks I mean, do you realize how long that is? That's, uh,
1: is that over two years? (laughs) Two years? There's 50 weeks in a year, buddy. Holy crap. Wait, I was thinking 736 days. That's ridiculous.
0: So I'll tell you, 84 weeks from March 73 to October 74, and it dropped out for a minute for some reason. then Then December 76 to April 88, it was still in the Billboard charts. 736 weeks.
1: I mean that's that's basically 15 years it was in the charts. This is the Stoner's soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's ever experimented with any kind of drugs has listened to the Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon on drugs. <laughs> so this album is certified 15 times platinum in the
0: US with over 9 million in sales in the US alone. It's not only critically acclaimed but it's most critically acclaimed albums of all time. It's sold almost 50 million copies worldwide, like I was saying. It's the fourth best-selling album of all time. All time. Whoa. Any album. Behind Thriller by Michael Jackson, of course, ACDC's Back in Black, and the Bodyguard soundtrack. Which, really? you've got <laughs> Thriller, of course, was in the early 80s, Back in Black in the early 80s, and then the mm-hmm. Bodyguard soundtrack in the 90s.
1: Yeah. So.
0: Rolling Stone, funny enough, and we always... You know my feelings on them, but I always do give that little tidbit. They've only ranked it as high as 35th of all time. As well-known as this album is, as critically acclaimed as it is, as Mm -hmm. well-loved as it is, Rolling Stone was only ranked it 35th.
1: Yeah, so if this doesn't get you on board with us uh, and our criticism of the Rolling Stone, I don't know what will. Yeah, kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah. So, of course, this
0: album's pretty famous, for its comparison to The Wizard of Oz. And I think anybody that knows Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon has probably made that attempt before. I have. And I guess you can make comparisons, but we then, me and my buddy, started doing it with some Doors albums and some Beatles albums, and funny enough, they worked to
1: The Wizard of Oz, too. Everybody was going off of The Wizard of Oz when making their albums? I think so. I believe that's the root of everything. You know, I'm sure there are albums out there who really were, uh, like, authentically made just to pair up with Wizard of Oz or some other movie. I want to listen to those albums. (laughs) So, you know, generally when we're doing these
0: album reviews, they're albums I've listened to quite a bit. And Mm -hmm. you may have heard one or two hit songs off of them. What is your connection with this album? Have you heard the whole album? How familiar with with it Uh, were you?
1: I've never listened to the whole album uh, beginning to end. I've heard every song on the album, but I've never sat down. This is my first time listening beginning to end straight through. That includes listening to like uh, alongside Wizard of Oz on mute. So. (laughs) So you've listened to this with the Wizard of Oz? I've listened to this with the Wizard of Oz, but skipped through it because it kind of Drone on got boring <laughs> well you've kind of got to
0: have it on time you know exactly okay so you haven't done it correctly I, no
1: I, I i did the youtube thing but i also skipped forward i'm like okay you know there, there's not anything really matching up because you're sitting there watching it if you haven't done it it's all over youtube there's like a dozen different videos that you can do this with it will match up significantly at certain points but it's not consistent you have a lot of like dull droning periods of nothing that doesn't match up. I,
0: I think you can find something in anything, and I think it. Mm-hmm. who knows where it started. But anyways, so let's get to the cover art. Pretty pretty well-known cover art on this thing. You've got a oh, prism yeah. on there with light reflecting mm-hmm. a rainbow out of it, and then on the back, of course, you've got the heartbeat blip. It's colored like the rainbow as well. Now, the album cover was designed by Aubrey Palin's Storm forguson of hypnosis there's actually a pretty decent documentary on them on netflix showing all the album covers they've designed and everything like that but it this is one of the most recognizable album yeah without a doubt yeah yeah definitely one of the most recognizable album covers there's no doubt about that do you want to get to side one of this record yep let's spin the record side one okay so side one first song opens up speak to me it's an instrumental written by nick Mason. And this one is somewhat of an overture for this album. I mean, this is definitely a concept album through and through, no doubt about it. Everything kind of runs together. It's basically, to me, this album is like life from beginning to end. And Because in the Overture, you hear many sounds in it, like the clock, uh, heart beating, laughing, like in Brain Damage, a cash Mm -hmm. register for money, other sounds from other songs on the album. So it's definitely an Overture. It's a real musical collage. You can even hear some of Claire Torrey's performance from The Great Gig in the Sky. And this is the shortest song on the album, just barely over one minute. What do you think of Speak to Me?
1: Collage is a great word for it. I was going to say it's a cornucopia of sound, but it's not... Anything as beautiful as a cornucopia. This is a collage. It's a, a a big mess of noise, and it doesn't blend well together. But that it doesn't. It's not necessarily supposed to. And I get where they're going with it. I think it should have been left as a introduction. I don't. I I don't like it standing on its own though. What do you think about this one?
0: Yeah, I, I kind of compare it to. Um, Quadrophenia a little bit on mm-hmm. their opening, or even Tommy, The Overtures. The Overtures okay. just kind of give you a small taste of some of the songs that come out, almost like a table of content. And I mean, it is just barely over a minute. It's just giving you a little snippet. So I don't know if it's really a song worth... It, it has to be here. If you've listened mm-hmm. to this album for yeah. years and years, this has to be here. It's what starts this album. Mm-hmm. And it it's unfair to rate it as a true song because yeah. obviously there's no vocals in the song and it's very short. But I
1: think it's important to have it as an overture. I mean, the what vocals you do have are just noise vocals. It's not even intended to be lyrics or anything. It's yeah, just, just some talking. Yeah, you just have voices because, hey, that's a noise that you can mix in here.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the one important thing is it starts with the heartbeat. That's how this whole album starts, is with the heartbeat, essentially the beginning of life. So that moves into Breathe in the Air. This song, the lyrics by Roger Waters and sang by David Gilmore. The music's by Waters, Richard Wright, and David Gilmore. And it's possibly about an old man telling a baby to breathe. I think I've read that somewhere from Roger Waters. And (laughs) it is separate Okay. from the first song on the vinyl, but whenever you hear this on the radio, they do combine them together because they're short. Almost every time you hear it on CD or on radio airplay, they're combined together. What are your thoughts on Breathe? Okay, so in the
1: context of, uh, say, a lifetime, where you, the heartbeat is what starts off, and let's say that life begins when the heart stops beating, there is an argument to be made for that. I'm you know, heard that argument before. So, like, the album starts with the heart beating, and then you have an old man telling a baby to breathe. This could be like a doctor delivering a, a newborn and getting the child to breathe. And uh, it starts off. Uh, th- this is a very popular, uh, commonly played song. It has a good sound to it. I like the song. It. Um, I have. I'm struggling to find what to say about songs on this album because, as much as I know these songs and how they make me feel and how, how they relate. Now it's like, okay, I've got a different way of looking at it. And I'm not sure what to, what I think yet, but enough of me rambling. What are your thoughts on this song? Cause I'm sure you have more to say than I do.
0: Well, funny enough, not a whole lot. And that was something I was struggling with while listening to this album. I've listened to this album hundreds and hundreds of times. And there's not really a song on this. I mean, maybe Money gets played quite a bit on the radio and you hear the other ones, but I don't really suffer any kind of earburn on any of these songs. Mm -mm. As as big as this album has been, it doesn't really have two or three songs that I'm just like, I can't stand listening to them. I think Money's the most popular song. And when I hear that come on, I want to hear it. and so. This one was hard for me, too, because where everything kind of runs into this theme, it's hard to comment on each individual song, especially with the theme. It's kind of strange, because as much as I love this album and I've always listened to it, I'm kind of in the same boat there. I think it's got a pretty electric guitar in it. He's got the univibe effect on it, Mm -hmm. and you'll hear me say this throughout. I think David Gilmour, if it's possible on the fourth best-selling album of all time, and one of the biggest-selling artists of all time. I think he's an underrated guitarist. Sure. I think he's an amazing player. It's got a good, slow bass line. I think Roger Waters does an excellent job there. They use the keyboard in this minimally, but I think it's used pretty. And I I really like words and the verbiage in it, you know, race towards an early grave. I mean, here we are having the baby being born. We're telling him to breathe, Mm -hmm. but it also ends this song with race towards an early grave. And so that kind of kickstarts the theme of what we're going towards here. Mm-hmm. Live fast and die young. So that moves us to the next song, On the Run. Now, this is another instrumental. is written by David Gilmour and Roger Waters together. It's supposed to be signifying the pressures of travel and actually the fear of death. You know, if you're mm-hmm. taking planes all over the place and traveling back and forth, there's a higher chance of death and there's fear in that. This song does feature a very heavy synthesizer and a lot of people consider this song especially one of the early early examples or beginnings of techno music. I'm not into techno music but I can kind of hear that. Yeah it but sounds I, like it. But I enjoy it too in this you know and the sound was created by recording an AKS synthesizer and they sped it up you can hear footsteps racing side to side and there's all kinds of things going on in this what are your thoughts about on the run
1: uh song definitely captures the um what that the the racing feeling of uh being in a hurry and needing to get somewhere You, you have this sense of um urgency and uh hurrying And then it sounded like an explosion. I had to look at you. I'm like, did something just blow up? And you said, no, it's an airplane engine. I'm like, okay, now that makes sense. But, But that airplane engine roar sounded like an explosion. And the fact that it sounded so much like an explosion just lends all the more to this sense of urgency. So... I got to say, they really captured that uh, feeling with the running steps and the pressures of travel and, hey, you know, you have places you got to get to and you got to make that plane, you know, trains don't wait or sort of thing, <laughs> wherever mode of travel, you have to get going. I, I like the concept. I think that they really accomplished what they set out and all without using words, all of it with instruments. Well done uh, to, Pink, to the people of Pink Floyd on that. What are your thoughts on it?
0: Well, I'm not sure if it's a plane. I was giving you my take on it, but if you look, li- <laughs> <laughs> if you listen really closely at the beginning, there's some speaking. They're talking about baggage and passports, and talking about the 215 or the 215 to Rome. Hmm. I think they say okay, 215 or 235. I can't remember something like that. So it is an airport you're kind of getting that sense of travel. And you've got Live for Today, Gone Tomorrow. There's steady drumming in this, the steady drumming beat with that synth sound. And like I said, I don't generally like synth, but I like the way they use it in this. And I'm pretty sure because of that beginning, talking about baggage and passports, that they're in the plane, they're traveling. And I think that explosion you hear at the end is a plane taking off. But that's my assumption. Yeah, good song. So that moves us to the next song, Time. Lyrics on this one written by Roger Waters. Music is by Mason Waters, Wright, and Gilmore. Lead vocals are sang by both David Gilmore and Richard Wright. Now, this one was released as a single in the U.S., and so the album version here we're doing today is almost seven minutes long, but the single version is just like three and a half minutes long, so it is a little bit different. It did not chart in the U.S. Really? No. This song starts with a ringing clock, and... It's possibly about like growing up and the pressures that come with growing up and having to make something of yourself and the pressures that come with that. You've got to climb the ladder. You've got to go to school. You've got to get a good job, everything (laughs) like that. And this song has really good imagery in it with the lyrics. You know, ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritters and waste the hours in an offhand way, kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. That's how this song kicks off and i love their use of lyrics i i think it paints an amazing
1: picture what are your thoughts on time now remind me who the lead guitarist is david Gilmore. david Gilmore? you're absolutely right a uh, very underrated guitarist when the guitar starts on this song it got such a foreboding sound it's it's creepy how how it, it gets that feeling in you that there's pressure there's you know time ticking away you have you've got to make something of yourself while you can. This reminded me so much of when I was like in my early twenties, late teens and trying to figure out what am I going to be when I grow up because dang it, I'm almost grown up and uh, I got to do something. What, what's my career going to be? What's my life going to be? How am I going to start a family, uh, find a, a mate, you know, this sort of stuff. And uh, there was that pressure and it was, it was a pretty intense pressure, and now that I am on the other end of it, being you know having wasted my entire life and all the opportunities I had, uh, I'm seeing that I really should have spent more time listening to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, probably doing some drugs and you know having a good time and enjoying it, rather than being so uptight and trying to grab that bull by the horns and just, and and figure my life out, because life happens one way or another. Okay, there's an excellent guitar solo in there. I sat there and listened to it, and it was just so smooth and so nice. I, I love uh, Mr. Gilmore on his, guitar, on his guitar. there's This also reminded me of a quote that I saw in a movie once. It said, we all die a little sooner than we expected. It, it's just that reminder that our time is very finite. And in the end, he's, he says, you know, home, home again, and that's what we do. We, we try to seek comfort in our lives, and we, we want to be at home and be comfortable, and yet we do spend so much of our lives in discomfort, at work, out in the you know hustle bustle and the busyness. We don't get to enjoy that sense and that feeling of being home and at, at ease very much. I really like the song. What did you think about it, Justin?
0: This song really sums up I think you hit it on the head there. It sums up the time of you becoming a young adult into young adulthood. You know, probably that 10-year period of time when you're trying to become something. Yeah. You know, but still trying to be, have a good time at the same time. But there's always that pressure of trying to become something. As far as the song goes, it's got the bongos or something in it, which I really like. It's got a nice, slow, decent bass and the guitar solo in this thing is absolutely amazing i Mm -hmm. think you were right on that one this this really shows david gilmore's chops and i've always loved his guitar playing it's really off style it's it's a little bit different they're not really shredding but they're they're just beautiful guitar riffs and he does an amazing job of it and i i've always respected him and the way he plays yeah i like that song so that moves us to the last song on side one the great gig in the sky Lyrics on this were written by Roger Waters, music by Richard Wright. Now, lead vocals, if you want to call them that, are by Claire Torrey. Now, they're not really vocals. They're... Wailing? Wailing, (laughs) I guess you would say. Uh, What's kind of interesting about that is they asked her to come in and do these, and it was completely freestyle. She chose what to do. They just didn't want words in it. I mean, it's hard to imagine this song any other way because I've heard it for so many years. But funny enough, and I don't know if it was 95 or 05, something like that, Claire Torrey actually sued... Pink Floyd on this song to get some songwriting credits on it because oh. she made that whole part up. And if you think about it, it really is no different than an instrument in it. Absolutely. She belongs
1: right up there with Roger Waters. Yeah. As and, credited for writing it.
0: Yeah. And she did win the lawsuit and got some <laughs> kind of undisclosed amount, which I think she deserved. Yeah, she should, yeah. Now, Roger Waters has said this song's about life and gradually descending into death. So I think this is in your later life. One kind of interesting thing about this song is you know, on the CD version, this fades right into money, but obviously not on the vinyl because it's the last song on the side. What What are your thoughts on the great gig in the sky?
1: It certainly seems like it's a, a, a bit of a death song. Maybe it's like the it's supposed to be the death of childhood, death of innocence, death of something. There is that wailing. Claire Tori is an amazing singer in this, um, because. I can't tell if she's wailing in ecstasy or agony, but it doesn't sound unpleasant. It's much more pleasant to listen to Claire Tori uh, wail than listening to, say, Yoko Ono's primal <coughs> screams. This is this was a good song, um, but it leaves me with so much to wonder about. And to I assumed it was wailing in agony because we're descending into death and it's hurting the, all the way. That's my thoughts. What do you think about this? I like this song. I
0: mean, it, I probably shouldn't with the way the singing is used as an instrument in it, mm-hmm. but it just fits perfect. And I don't, I think if you go with the theme of the album, this must be young adulthood. It's almost to me like the pain of going into your middle age years or something. I'm not really sure because when you continue on, you know, on the other side of this album, we get into money, which is always the problem when you're in young adulthood, too. So to me, this mm-hmm. is almost like the death of innocence or naivety or something into young adulthood. That's kind of what I think. And maturing. Yeah. It's got a beautiful piano intro. The bass is slow and pretty in it. And then the piano, after all the... I hate to call it wailing either because you you said it. Mm -hmm. Yoko Ono wails. Yeah. This isn't Mm -hmm. a whale. Claire Torrey's... The way she sings in this, and singing's a bad way to put it, too, because yeah. there's no lyrics. Just the sound she makes fits in perfect with the music up mm-hmm. and down, and it it's a beautiful song. I've always liked a great gig in this guy. Do you want to get to Side 2? Flip it. Side 2. Okay, so Side 2 opens up with probably the most well-known song on this album, Money. Ka-ching. Ka-ching. Lyrics and music by Roger Waters, lead vocals by David Gilmore. You've got Dick Perry playing saxophone on this. This was released as a single with any color as you like as the B-side. It reached number 13 in the U.S. and number 18 in Canada. And that's kind of what I'm talking about is this album, the fourth best-selling album of all time with all the history, all the juice behind it, everything, all the stuff with The Wizard of Oz and how well-known this album is. And this album really doesn't have a huge hit single off of it. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, this is it. Money (laughs) hit number 13. Didn't even chart in the UK. I'm not even sure if it was released in the UK, mm-hmm. but it hit 13 in the U.S. and 18 in Canada. And of course, this song opens up, like you were just saying, with the sound of a cash register. And, mm-hmm. and this song really is trying to identify the struggle between socialism and materialism. I mean, it really is. Yeah. I think Roger Waters has said before, too, you know, he was kind of a socialist in a way. He starts making money and it's like, Yeah, I really want that car. I really want that house. You know, (laughs) now I am.
1: Money can provide you with a lot of comfort.
0: Yeah, and so in this song, as it's written, is the singer being greedy or is it irony we're hearing here? What are your thoughts on
1: money? I really like the the opening. I just jotted down some of the sound effects that they play. opens with the cash register. Coins jingling, um, receipts being printed and also being uh, torn off of the printer. So like you get a lot of mechanical noises in there as well, and the whole greed. It, it it really sounds like the ruling classes are preaching to the huddled masses in this song with the a lot of the the way the things that they say, and I, I dig it. Maybe this is like what more of a portrayal of televangelists preaching, telling people to be charitable and send money to them rather than being charitable with the money that they receive. They're going to just keep that for themselves because, you know, they're doing the Lord's work and, you know, doing the Lord's work what deserves getting some of the Lord's pay, right? That was just a thought that I had while listening to the way this song played out and all the, the lyrics. Excellent song and yet I'm still trying to figure it out. There's so much to to pick apart on this. It's no wonder to me that this song is like, or that this album's the fourth best-selling of all time, and yet because it it can't be unpacked in one listening, I'm going to have to sit and listen to this over and over again. I mean, this is probably, what, 10th, 12th time I've listened to this song. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm going to have to listen to it actively again and again and again in order to unpack it. What do you think about Money? I've always loved Money
0: and the song Money, but I've always kind of thought this song was more signifying that time in your life where maybe you've kind of settled down and that's what you were after, a career and money, but also balancing that against being happy because yeah. sometimes, you know, working 14 hours a day doesn't make you happy. And I think a lot of us have mm-hmm. been through that. And I think, yeah. I don't even know if that's a young man or a young person struggle. I think that's a lifelong struggle in sure. a lot of ways. And sometimes you probably learn, but do you learn too late?
1: Well, that seems to be what we try to figure out with our lives. We listen to people that tell us over and over again, oh, money is, isn't everything. And so we've, but on the other hand, the bank sure expects you to pay your mortgage with money. <laughs> well, money doesn't solve problems, but it solves...
0: I should say this differently. Money doesn't solve all problems, but it mm. solves a lot
1: of them. It sure does. And makes yeah. a lot of other ones hurt a lot less. Mm-hmm. It, it buys comfort. You can give up a certain level of comfort if you're willing to give up the money that it will that is required to buy that level of comfort. As
0: far as the song is concerned, it's got one of the best, most recognizable bass line intros of all time. It's one of the first things I learned to play on guitar, and I've played it on my bass. I I do love the bass line on this thing. It's got good guitar licks throughout. I don't generally gravitate towards saxophone, but the sax solo that's played by Dick Perry in this is excellent, and it fits in very well. And then Gilmore on the guitar solo right after that, because if they would have just used the sax, I would have said it needs guitar, but they Mm -hmm. play the little sax solo, then Gilmore plays the guitar solo, and he absolutely crushes it. And I love kind of the spoken part at the end, why does anyone do anything? I do not know. I was really drunk at the time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this song is just an amazing song to listen to. It's a fun song. If you don't want to dive into the lyrics and what it all means, it's still a damn good song to listen to.
1: Absolutely. Dick Perry is amazing on the saxophone.
0: Real good player. So that moves us to the next song, Us and Them. Lyrics once again by Roger Waters and the music's by Waters and Wright. Lead vocals by David Gilmore once again. You've got Dick Perry playing saxophone on this song as well. This is the longest song on the album nearly eight minutes long. This was released as a single with Time as the B-side. It did not chart, but it did hit number 85 in Canada. And that's kind of the anomaly about this album is this needs to be consumed as an album. You know, it's got some good separate songs, but this is meant to be a true album. This song is possibly about the senselessness of war and the death it brings, that we're all just ordinary people and... None of us want to be involved in these battles. None of us want to die for these political reasons that these people are putting
1: us in war for. What are, what are your thoughts about us and them? So this album's uh released in 1973. Was Vietnam over at that time then? Not yet. Not yet. So Vietnam's still going. Why did this not chart? That blows me away cuz this was one of my favorites on the on the whole album it's very a very mellow sounding song and maybe that's it doesn't quite fit the message as mellow of a song as this is but it really ramps up and gets going when it's uh, trying to preach at you. But boy, it sends that strong message that the powerless are out there losing their lives because of a few powerful people who have ego insecurities. Listen to them play this song, you know, and it's so smooth and mellow, but you're getting that message. It's such a dagger to the heart, and it's like, you know, nobody wants to, to go and lose their life for nothing, for, you know, just because some a ruler or dictator somewhere wants more power. I mean, you're giving your life away for somebody else's greed. That's stupid. I mean, it's bad enough if you're giving away your life for your own greed, but to give your life for somebody else's, it's senseless. So I absolutely love this song. And that saxophone, once again, uh, Dick Perry, you're amazing on the saxophone, amazing musician. What do you think about us and them? I agree with you on the sax. Like I said, I don't generally love
0: the sax. I don't dislike it, but it's used really well in these songs. It fits fits really well. And, and you also said this is kind of a slower song. I think it's kind of a somber, sad song in a lot of ways. And I think that's maybe depicting the war, because war is a sad thing. It does have, you know, when it starts out, forward he cried and the front rank died. Obviously, it's speaking about war. I don't know if they're being literal about that or if it's the wars we fight in our lives. You know, I mean, who knows what all this is about? But if it truly is about war or the wars we fight in our lives, it all pertains. And this is just another link in this album that has to be here. So it moves us to any color you like. It's another instrumental on this album written by Gilmore Mason Wright. It was the B-side of money. When money obviously reached number 13 in the U.S. and number 18 in Canada. The song title is from a catchphrase used by former Pink Floyd road manager, Chris Adamson. When they'd ask him for a guitar, Adamson would respond, any color you like, they're all blue.
1: And of (laughs) course,
0: any color you like has the U in it. Yeah, we want to make sure we get the correct British mm-hmm. spelling in there. They use the VCS3 synthesizer in this song once again, and you've got David Gilmour on guitar
1: again with that Univibe. What are your thoughts on any color you like? It's it's very much an instrumental song. There's no vocalization in it at all. Um, have would have no idea that it was even titled if it uh, didn't have it written on the on the album cover. The instrumentals are all very competently played. That being said, it's not my favorite song just because it doesn't really speak to me. I'm not getting a message from this song the way that other songs on this album have a strong message. Because there's some really potent messages, especially just coming off the tail end of the last one, Us and Them. This song, Any Color You Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's not sending a message through the through the instruments what did you think about it i really like this song i i I
0: agree it doesn't send much i don't think it sends much of a message the synthesizer in it's used well it's Mm -hmm. not overpowering but it's used well i think the thing for me why i like this song is because about halfway through the song david gilmore kicks into a guitar solo to the end that's i've got stars all over that because that's what i'm This song's powerful when it comes to that. And for me, music can decipher the lyrics like you like to do. And even though if they seem straightforward, half the time they're not, right? We don't know what the lyricist is writing about or what he's meaning. Sometimes Mm -mm. it's a bunch of bullshit written down and the lyrics are hiding it. Especially Pink Floyd. Well, yeah, but one (laughs) one thing you can't hide is the actual music. And so when we, we get some of these instrumentals, and I know a lot of times we put them off as our least favorite because they're easy targets... But sometimes a good instrumental, especially when it comes to Pink Floyd, the guitar solo in this is amazing. And Pink Floyd, for me, breaks rules that I wouldn't put up with with other bands. But for some reason, with Pink Floyd and me, it's always worked. And I love it. But (laughs) other bands doing it, maybe not so much. It's kind of a strange thing I've got going. So that moves us to brain damage. Lyrics, music, and lead vocals on this one are all by Roger Waters. This is a song about insanity, Pretty sure this is referring to their ex-singer guitarist, Pink Floyd <laughs> founder, Sid Barrett. Generally played in unison with the next song, Eclipse, on the radio. You generally don't hear these songs broke apart too often like we did on the record. Uh, the lyrics, the Lunatic is on the grass, or gross, I should say. Yeah, They do not refer to the drug, marijuana, you know, but rather actual sod. Mm-hmm. Roger Waters actually has stated he based that line off of a sign that he's seen that said stay off the grass. And he, mm-hmm. he thought anyone who disobeyed the signs was crazy, you know. He got to keep the loonies on the path or path, you know, because you gotta rhyme, yeah. you got to rhyme p- path with grass as one does.
1: Yeah, meaning that people <laughs> must not get off the path and go on the grass, right? Uh, obviously, he hasn't heard the song, uh, Signs, Signs, Everywhere it's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and then he's got the other line in this. If the band you're in starts playing different tunes, that's a specific reference to Sid Barrett's propensity for playing the wrong song on stage during his uh, so-called Episodes, you know, mm-hmm. towards his final days with the band he led to his dismissal from the band, not only his mental state, but his use of heavy drugs and things like that. What, what is
1: your thoughts on brain damage? Um, I really like this song. It's a, it's a silly song. It's a crazy song. Going back to what we were saying about any color you like, just when you think you've got Pink Floyd figured out, this is another song. Where I'm, I'm just looking at this. Like I have no idea what it's about. And I love that. It makes sense. They're being a dig at, Sid Barrett. In fact, it makes me wonder just how much of this album is a dig at Sid Barrett. I think this album is based on Sid Barrett, but
0: I don't think it's a dig. I think mm-hmm. it's more of a tribute to okay. Sid Barrett than a dig. I really do because the band did show love for him for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously when he was having problems with the band and wasn't doing what he was supposed to and wasn't mm-hmm. contributing, it was tough, but yeah. I think once he left the band, I think they did know he was the founder and he was the
1: originator and let him through all those early years. So that makes a lot more sense. And this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy doing this podcast is because uh, sitting here and listening to my perspective and then getting a little bit more perspective from someone who's got a lot more experience with it really helps to shape the way that I see it. So I'm glad that we do these uh, podcasts because it's just so helpful to me trying to understand it gives me a much better and deeper appreciation for these things my favorite thing about this song it it gives the record title in it We'll see you on the dark side of the moon it's uh it's pretty and i really like it i i don't know that it's favorite but it's definitely one i've heard uh more than uh several of the other songs on here this is one of the more common songs i'll hear of course tied in with uh, eclipse the last song uh but what do you think about brain damage It's another essential piece to it. Obviously,
0: it's about Sid Barrett. Pretty simple if you know the story. As far as the music, it's got a decent bass line on it. It has decent drumming in it. In fact, this is the song that the drumming stuck out most to me in. And I don't think the the album has poor drumming. It's just not the focal point. Some albums we've, we've reviewed the drumming's decent but it's mixed so far in the back this doesn't feel like it's mixed in the back it just doesn't seem like the focal point
1: and like it needs to
0: be no what
1: it is it seems like the drums throughout this whole album are a heartbeat that's going faster just a little bit faster than your normal heartbeat rate would be
0: yeah if i had one criticism of this song and and a couple others on this album it would be the lack of guitar on this song because when when we mm-hmm. have the guitar from Gilmore, it just completely shines. And the one thing that yeah. sticks out on this song to me is the line, There's someone in my head, but it's not me. Yeah. Which kind of explains everything that's going on. And that's mm-hmm. why that's why I see it more as a tribute to Sid Barrett mm-hmm. than than a knock on him. So we'll go to the last song on the album, Eclipse, which is generally like we said, hooked to brain damage when you hear him on the radio, but Lyrics, music, and lead vocals on this one are also by Roger Waters again. And this is kind of the closeout of the album. You've got reprises of some of the lyrics from Breathe, All That You Touch, All That You See, that part. The working title for this album was Eclipse, A Piece for Assorted Lunatics. This song ends with a heartbeat, just like the first song started with Mm -hmm. a heartbeat. And that really brings this whole album full circle. Closing the album the same way it opens. And it's actually a kick drum I read process to sound like a pulse i'd be interested to see how they did that but yeah but i guess you know back in those days you had to be a little more inventive you didn't just have something you could have every sound on you know some kind of soundboard what are your thoughts on the last song eclipse
1: i really enjoyed it this was a great strong uh close to the album um contrasted with the uh previous song the great gig in the sky uh contrasted against the great gig in the sky this one doesn't feel like you're descending into a grave or the death of something. If it is the death of something, this is more like riding to glory above in a fiery chariot sort of thing. This is uh, your Elijah ascent into the into heaven. not like you're getting you know flung down screaming into a grave. I thought it was a perfect end to the album and one of the reasons why this is such a a bestseller because <laughs> um, it ties it all together so nicely. One of the favorites. What did you think of it?
0: You know, I like the way the song brings everything full circle. It closes out the album. I can't see it being any way, but I've listened to it so many times, I couldn't imagine it another way. But I love the heartbeat at the end. And I like where they say, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get the eclipse. That's where it brings a full circle. You get the heartbeat. So is that another birth? Is it a death? What is it? I I don't know. Is the heartbeat new? Is it the ending heartbeat? Who knows?
1: Well, it's all about lunatics. Um said the like they named it lunatics for people that went crazy on the full moon. So maybe that's, you know, significant. I don't know. Strange.
0: Good way to end the album. Do you want to get to winners and losers? Let's do it. Winners and losers. Okay, Tyler. So we did Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. What would you pick as your losers on this album?
1: The Losers, I'm being a little bit harsh. I'm going with The Great Gig in the Sky. Why am I calling this one a loser? It's not even so much of a loser, probably just one of the ones that I didn't enjoy as much as the others, and it's probably because it was mostly instrumental as an instrumental song. It's it's just fine, but I I can't see them really playing this on the radio all that much because there's it it doesn't stand on its own very well it stands with the album great doesn't stand so much on its own the other one is also the an instrumental any color you like that one i just didn't feel like it contributed anything but that now that you mention it that guitar solo really uh david gilmore really showcased what he could do with a guitar and that unified effect was amazing so i feel guilty but those are my losers do you have any losers on this one this album's really tough for me
0: because you said the standalone song on the radio or whatever. I think Money is really the only song that is a really decent standalone song. I, I don't really have any losers on this album. And if if any, you know, I could maybe call out Brain Damage, the second to last song, just because there wasn't use of guitar. But I, the problem is, is it still fits. Everything fits this album. You know, I bring this into the same category as Tommy from The Who or... Quadrophenia from The Who, because it fits together, and this even more so than those albums. You know, when you listen to Quadrophenia or Tommy, there's quite a few singles off those albums that you can hear, and they they work really well separate. This album, not so much for me. So I don't really think I have any losers on this album, because to me, this is a pure album, and, and this is one thing where I don't like this being mixed up in streaming playlists and things, because this should be whole. I really think everything should be listened to as an album. I still mm-hmm. do it to this day. Even when I make my playlists on Spotify and Apple or whatever, I make them in albums. I don't mix up the songs.
1: So yeah. that's tough for me. What about your winners on this one? Uh, winners, there's there's a few of them. I really enjoyed Time. And my winners on this are really based off of like the message of the songs, how well that message came through, not only with the lyrics and the songwriting, but also the The performance, Time, I think, was a perfect example of um, a good, strong way of uh, relaying that message. The other favorite that I had was Us and Them. I thought that the last song was one of my favorites, um, Eclipse, but um, Us and Them, I'd have to put right at the top because that one, I uh, caught the, the message of it so strongly and realized that this is a song that's all about pointing out in a very unique way that I haven't I, I've heard a lot of war protest songs and I've heard a lot of anti-prejudicial songs this song really points out the fact that hey you know there's people shooting at me right over there and I'm shooting at them we're trying to kill each other and we have we have more in common than we have reasons to fight they're over there shooting at me For the exact same reason, because they've got some guy behind them that's, you know, got a fragile ego that wants to get more power or uh, make a statement by killing people or having people killed in his name. Just like I have a guy behind me barking orders. I need to go and sacrifice my life for the greater good of this uh, guy who I've never met because he says I need to die or I need to go and kill these other people when really... Before we picked up Guns, he had a, a regular nine-to-five job just like I had sort of thing. And that song really painted a, a picture for me that um, I appreciated very well. So that's why that's my favorite. What are your favorites? Well, to be fair,
0: I don't think I'm going to name any favorites either. All right. Because, once again, I think it just fits so well together as an album, and that's the way it should be consumed. And I don't think there's really anything that should be left off or can be left off. And that's coming from the opinion of somebody that's listened to this album for years. And so I don't know it any different. But I just don't, I mean, I mean, there's pieces I like. I like David Gilmour's guitar solos. I mean, Money being the most well-known song and probably the most played. And I think it's deservedly so because it stands alone the best. But as an album, it's really hard to break this stuff down. So do you want to get the album rating?
1: Yep, let's rate it. Album rating. Okay, if this is your first time listening, I'm going to go over this briefly. We are a 0 to 10 scale in our rating system, 0 being its absolute garbage and 10 being its absolute masterpiece. So if it's a 5, it's smack dab in the middle. Anything above that is positive. Anything less than that is negative. That being said, I'm giving this one a 6. I really thought I would give this album a higher rating than that. When going into this and knowing what little experience I had with this album, I expected to like this more than I did. And yet it left me a little puzzled. And after talking about it with you on the podcast here, I realized that I am giving this a six low because I don't have enough experience with this album. If I sit down and listen to this album some more and really listen to it and get into it and dig into it and tear it apart a little bit, it's go, that's going to go up. And I've said that before on other uh, albums that we've done, but this one, I'm, it also keeps me motivated to do that. So where do you rate this one? This is definitely a Desert Island album for me. The funny
0: thing about that is I think of all the top 10 albums I have, and it's more than 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, it, you know it changes with moods and obviously i just love music so i've mm. probably got a hundred top 10 albums and this is one of them so without a doubt pink floyd dark side of the moon is a 10 for me i've listened to this album for years it's certainly a certain type of mood music it's not a get down and rock them out type of thing but i'll always go back to this album and like i said it certainly should be consumed as an album Mm -hmm. if you in fact almost all pink floyd should be consumed that way in my opinion i agree it just it it feels better but yeah definitely one of my favorite albums of all time and there's a reason Mm -hmm. it's the fourth best-selling album of all time it's really funny because a lot of times success doesn't mean it's good or just because it's good doesn't mean it's going to be successful. I think
1: this kind of hit it on all fronts as far as I'm concerned. For sure. I mean, akin to like a concept car, this concept album had so many features about it that you're just blown away by and so fascinated with. You get to driving it and you realize, well, you know, some of these features kind of get in the way of me enjoying the ride. And yet this whole album, it's it's a concept. It You're supposed to... Um, see the ride differently after purchase or going for a ride in this concept car. Maybe I'm drawing the analogy too far.
0: No, I know what you mean. Okay. <laughs> but that's Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Send and- us an email. Let us know what you think. If we're right, if we're wrong, you agree, disagree, whatever, it- Vinyl podcast at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening to us, giving us ratings. We know there's a lot of podcasts out there to spend your time with, so we appreciate you spending time with us. But
1: until next time, see ya. Thank you so much for listening to Classic Vinyl Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Classic Vinyl Podcast for updates and also share us with your music-loving friends.